Welcome to Die Hard on a Black, the podcast where we usually explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. But today, we're exploring the influence of Die Hard on Christmas movies, one Christmas movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is Home Alone. It's Die Hard in a kid's movie. Christmas special. Here we go. One year in. One year in. To honor this momentous occasion, we have an incredible guest who is also the first guest to return to the show for a second time because we love him so much and we're such huge fans of his. Please welcome the one and only Mr. Paul Shear. Gentlemen, I'm so excited to be back. Um, I don't remember where this idea came from, if it was after we stopped recording in the last episode or we talked about it on air, but since... We started talking about this idea. I've been just chomping at the bit to really have a place, a, 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 a forum <laughs> to finally bring the truth out about Home Alone and Die Hard. I, I feel like we have for a long time not been able to to bridge this gap. People don't want to talk about it, but you are not afraid to go there. And I am thrilled. Well, we should all say very quickly that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And this is a Christmas podcast as a result of it being a Christmas movie. So we're very excited to talk Christmas any old time of the year, but particularly right now in this time of the year. And we're breaking the format for this because usually I'm a real, I'm a real stickler, stickler for the chronology. You're yeah, a real, like, sti- you're a real we, Scrooge for, a real for, Scrooge for, for, format. <laughs> for, for format about that we go chronologically through all these action movies. But funnily, a lot of people had asked us, like, are you ever going to do Home Alone? And then I remember... Uh, I, somehow, somewhere in the cosmos, I absorbed that Paul had this theory uh, that Home Alone was a diehard movie. And the stars just, when you came on for Clear and Present Danger, the stars just aligned for us to do this. So I'm so excited about it. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, Paul, was was off the bat, was what's your personal relationship with this movie? Honestly, when Home Alone came out, it felt like a kid's movie to me. Like I was a little bit older than the perfect audience for this film. And I felt like, eh, not for me. I liked it. It was good, but it wasn't my, it wasn't like, this is my Mm. defining film. You know, um, as I've gotten older, I've really come to love it. And with kids now, I've watched it so many times. I appreciate the hell out of this movie. Like there's so much good stuff in Home Alone. And I think it, actually is this perfect mix of John Hughes and Christopher Columbus. There's nothing really wasted in this movie. Everything's really smart and better than it should be. I think as a kid, seeing a kid in a movie going like, that's a kid's movie. I'm a little bit older than that. It felt like I'm keeping it at arm's length, but it has grown to be one of my favorite John Hughes movies, even though it's not a John Hughes movie, technically it is written by John Hughes, but it, it really does have the perfect stamp of both of them. Like both of them at their peak kid movie. Like this is, you know, yes, there's been Curly Sue's there's been, you know, Harry Potter, the first one, like, but this is kind of like them mastering this form of making a movie starring a kid that is actually a great film. Yeah, it's it's these two sensibilities kind of perfectly uh, combining. Um, 
I I was curious if you'd you know if if did Liam did you see it when it came out at this at the theater because I didn't discover it for like to like a few years ago really like not discover but the, I, yeah when I you know it's, it's sort of a I was a late bloomer on this one but I was eight years old when this movie came out and. Fun fact, today is my birthday. So it's very possible that this was a birthday movie with my family. I'm sure I went to the movies for my birthday with this. I'm sure that's what we did as like our birthday celebration. So yes, very close to my heart, this movie. I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I just want to double down. Watching this film now as a 41-year-old adult with children, it's a completely different experience. It's like kind of amazing. And I think that that's a great thing about a movie when you watch it at a different age and you go like, oh, wow, I'm having a different experience than I would have had if I were, you know, an eight-year-old watching this film. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that John Hughes, I think, always stepped up a little bit. The casting in this movie is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone scores it and, and there are emotional moments in here and i and i think a lot about how this movie almost didn't get made because christopher columbus was on uh national lampoon's christmas vacation and like realized how much of an asshole chevy chase was and it was like i gotta go and john hughes who also produced that another great christmas movie i also love that as well mm-hmm. was like hey, hey hey no 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 come over here let's let's go make this one instead so it wasn't like Christopher Columbus was looking to make a kid's movie. I think he brought a sensibility of just making a great, I mean, let's be honest, a diehard movie, uh, you know, and uh, just happened to star a kid. Yeah, and I gather, <laughs> that, I gather that he brought in the subplot with the the Marley stuff, which we'll talk about, which yeah. gave it a, another dimension. Like you're saying, yes. it's actually so many different films. It does so much. But before we get too far into that, um, let's just run a, a little top line fact check so we can put this in a little bit of context. Yeah, tell and, us a little bit about Home Alone, Phil. Well, you will remember this, Liam, because when you were a, a wee nipper... Um, in uh, November 16th, 1990 was when this movie uh, came out. It was released by 20th Century Fox, the same studio as as Die Hard, written and produced by John Hughes. So that's why it's sort of, it's a John Hughes movie, but it's kind of not a John Hughes movie, but it is. It was directed by Chris uh, Columbus. And of course, it stars Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara, and John Hurd, amongst many others. Insane. As you said, all what star an cast. cast. Yes. And Kieran Culkin. Which is crazy to think about now. Uh-huh. And on an estimated budget of 18 million, it grossed, are you ready for this? $476.7 million. It was number one wow. at the box office for 12 weeks, three months. Like what a monster. Monoculture this film, stuff. This 90s monoculture stuff. Incredible. Well, this, Wild. One of the things I remember about this film that is a real, like, just a moment for me or a dividing line about how successful this film was, was at this point when VHS tapes came out, they were really expensive. Like they're like a hundred bucks a tape, Mm -hmm. right? You couldn't buy a VHS tape, but this was one of the handful of movies. I remember Temple of Doom being one of them and Home Alone being the other one that was in the supermarket for 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. So when I went to the supermarket as a kid, you could come home with Home Alone. And I remember buying it because it's like, oh my gosh, I have a chance to own a movie but it was so successful that they like they knew oh we'll make we'll make bank we don't need to rent this out we'll just have everyone buy this and this is like again we're talking it's a different time in culture it was it was next to impossible to own a vhs movie and this is mm-hmm. a movie that is rare in that air for me or at least my memory of it as being like oh it was it was like by the box office hit that, that changed everything 
And I'm, I can only imagine how much it made on whole on, on oh resale. my god a monster i also remember that being true with like batman i remember buying batman 89 on 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 yes. vhs tape and that kind of being a moment and how everyone had a copy of that because it was still kind of a cool curiosity to own a vhs tape yes. at this point so everyone was buying you know the classics or like the clamshell disney movies or whatever the case might be and it speaks to the rewatchability of the movie like it's it's almost like renting it it's it's that would be too ephemeral you know it's right. like this is i i watched this movie twice in a week both times and was like it was like a new experience each time i'm like i'm fully present with this movie it's a movie you can watch multiple times it's just it, yeah i mean it's it's there's, it's great there's a lot of nooks and crannies in this mm -hmm. movie and i think when I rewatch it and I've watched the new Home Alone and by the way Home Alone 2 is the one I had the most disdain for and okay. in the rewatch of that I'm like it might even be better it's like, really good it's, it's really, really good. good yeah it's it is really, it, it's what they do on Home Alone 2 which is so interesting is they it's like a meta version of Home Alone it's like we know we're doing this again and they're and everyone's kind of aware of it but yet at <laughs> yeah. the same time they give you everything you want but this is this movie is a tom and jerry cartoon this movie yes. is um it's very much like uh, like a coyote and uh wily e. coyote and the roadrunner like and i think that that's what makes it watchable from a just visual point of view but then they give you all this stuff that you don't expect movies like this to have and when you watch that new home alone sorry to go back to my original point which i think is terrible um and i think it's terrible because they try so hard to make everybody likable or everybody, mm. you know, it's like the bad guys aren't bad guys. Like here, it's like, these are bad guys. They're goofy. They're trying to hurt a kid. There are scary people in the world. Like there's, there's a couple of like real things about this movie that I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, they can't remake this movie. You couldn't remake this movie. They've tried to remake this movie. They can't, mm. they won't like, uh, you know, they, it just studios are too afraid. I think to make something where kids are, like legit in danger. Like Kevin's legit in danger. Yeah. When they hang and, him up on that yeah. scene, when they hang him up on the on the door, you're like, they're gonna kill this kid. Yeah. Like it's yeah. the only yeah. thing Thank that God could for possibly Molly, like coming in. I got yeah. quite nervous, and I just watched it like a few days ago, and I was like, oh, oh come on, yeah. Molly. Like let's let's go. I'm worried about Kevin. I know, yeah. I know, and it's a, and it's a movie that I think in pop culture discourse, something is always it comes back up a lot. Right. Because it is something like Liam, what you're saying, like you can rewatch it with your family. It's something that when it's on, like it's so fun to watch. You can jump in at any point. It, um, and even as recently as this week, the New York Times wrote a giant article about Home Alone. They wrote an article um, that came out this week about how wealthy is, you know, are the McAllisters. And they went to uh, like, like literally wow. went to um, the Federal Reserve for answers. And they're, and they're like. They are the 1%. Like they are like to this day, they, they went back, they, they looked at the address, they saw the income, but they said 1990, this house was only affordable to the top 1% of Chicago household incomes. And it would still be the case today. And that's according to economists at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. <laughs> uh, you know, wow. so well, yeah. The, the, it's, the yeah. flag for me was John Hurd's Burberry jacket that is pretty oh, yeah. sick. Well, I you guys like... know the theory, the online theory that he's in the mob, right? There's this <laughs> whole right? Reddit oh, theory that he is in the mob that I, well, you know, someone was like, you have to talk about that on this episode. And I was like, that might be for another episode. But you can go to on Reddit. There's someone who wrote this long 
theory about the fact that the McAllisters are mobbed up. Right. And the idea that like Kevin is so used to this brutal violence <laughs> because he's been grown up in this society. Uh, you he's know, probably uh, also seen Die Hard. Wow. We yes, are exactly. through the looking glass here, people. And speaking of which, while we spoke about these these analogies and uh, to other movies that are a little more darker and a little more violent, why don't we move into this section? This is why everybody bought their ticket today. We're going to move into the section Die Hard DNA. Stole my line. Sorry, you I stole, stole that for you. I just got line. too excited. I'm sorry. I'm going to be sorry. generous I'm sorry. about I'm sorry. it, but I got, stole I got my too line. excited. Uh, um, which is where we, we basically we put these movies under the microscope and uh, look at the how they connect to the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard. Now, I have made a list, but I want to uh, yield the floor to Mr. Paul Shear. Uh, first of all, to to lay this out for us, what okay. were the big, what were your headlines that you? I can see a giant wall behind theory. you with notes. It's yes, got this little, is like, this lines. is my like this Kevin's is my diagram. yeah this is my JFK it's right Jill here. Jill and Holland's uh, Zodiac yeah, vibes at right. Paul's place right now. <laughs> all right, so you know I was rewatching this film with the intent to have this conversation. So these are things that I'm gonna pull out. I think you can all jump in behind me here. But first of all. Let's break it down to the first central premise of Die Hard. He is a fish out of water. New York City cop in L.A. doesn't understand it, you know. And I would say that this movie does something really interesting. Kevin is in his house, but it's not his house. It's all these other people in his house. So he's in a world that he doesn't understand. That's when all the family is there, right? So that's the first kind of things are off, mm. right? He's not, he's not the right Kevin. He's already... <sighs> uncomfortable in the world now we're going to go one step further and go well now he's in the house that's familiar and now it's empty so he's he mm -hmm. has like almost two things that create this unevenness the same thing that uh is in many respects the john mcclain john mcclain has no shoes on kevin has a house without parents like that's that's uh you know i'm going to tie that together it's like oh yes i know how to walk but i can't do it well because i don't have my shoes I know how to live in my house, but I don't have my parents. So that's like the shoes are the parents being gone. But the uneasiness of the day is the discombobulation that the that the extended family brings into it, making Kevin act like an asshole. Um, I will also uh, jump ahead for a second and say that we talked about Marley. You know, to me, Marley is Reginald Vell Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Reginald Vell Johnson was uh, put on a desk job because he killed a kid. Marley has, uh, you know, forsaken his own son, got into an argument with his son, hasn't seen him in a long time, now is alone, right? So they have this, like, this moment in the church where they, the two of them bond over, oh, we are, we are, we are the same. Like, we are cut from the same cloth. I don't have a family and I miss it, but my family will come back. And he, Kevin tells him, you need to get your family back. Like, right. this moment. And if we want to continue that analogy one step further, well... Who saves the day in Die Hard, Reginald Vell Johnson, with the gun, you know, the final shot of the movie. Yes, he doesn't kill Hans Gruber, but he kills uh, the guy from the money. Carl, yeah. Yeah, Carl. Yeah. Um, and Marley comes in with that shovel, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so, all right. So, that's that's some base also, level stuff. Also, they both have, all have regrets. 
Like they talk about their regrets, right? Like I regret treating my wife badly. I regret shooting this kid and losing my badge. And that's a big, uh, not Halloween, excuse me. That's a big Christmas theme, which is like second chances, taking things over and over again and fixing them the next time. And you know what else about that is that it's structurally, it's in the exact same place in the movie, sort of end of act two, before all the third act chaos Mm -hmm. that comes. It's like a lowest point moment. It's the taking the glass out of the foot, having that conversation, going to church, and look, sometimes people would say watching children sing in a choir is like having glass in your feet. So, you know, I, I think that there is a connection there. Uh, it's a come to Jesus moment yes, in a way, isn't it? Like, yes. uh, you know, almost literally and almost literally in Home Alone because they're at church, uh, having that kind of crisis of conscience and think, you know, and, and, and thinking about those deep matters. And in Die Hard, it is, it's, it's that kind of equivalent. It's sort of this a spiritual crisis uh, that occurs at that moment, right? Well, let's talk about Holly Jane. Nero and and Catherine O'Hara mm. also very much um, cut from the same cloth, right? Like Catherine O'Hara feels bad that she's banished her son, right? Holly Gennaro feels a little guilty. She's changed her name to Gennaro, not McLean. You know, did she, you know, why they are separated is interesting in Die Hard. And we get more into it in the final, you know, other ones. But like this moment of there's some guilt. She sent him up to the room. She forgot him. You know, she's trying to get, she believes that he'll be okay, but she is trying to get to him, right? There's a connection there with this other, this woman, mother, wife on the side, trying to get, you know, trying, like she believes in John. She believes in Kevin. Uh, there's still, but she's still trying to get to him. And I feel like Holly is trying to get, you know, messages to John or things to John, right? There's a connection there. You know, I want to go one step further and say that I think that's something that's really interesting is that like Kevin being banished to the ba- uh, to the attic, excuse me, yes. is almost like the way McLean shows up at the party and like, you know, Kevin wants attention, right? He wants to yes. be the center of his mother's attention. McLean shows up and instead of going to the house and seeing his kids, his wife is like, please come to my kind of scuzzy work party with people you don't know and he walks Christmas into this Eve. room yes yeah it's gross and he walks in this room and it's the last place he wants to be and there's a nasty cocktail and then she's like okay why don't you get cleaned up in this back room and we'll have an argument which really yeah. nicely parallels the way that you know the mom brings kevin upstairs and she's like everyone in this house is having a good time except for you so it's like they're both kind of bah humbugs right before christmas yes I I like that. I like that. Sort of excommunicated a little bit. They're pushed aside. They're marginalized. And as like you were saying earlier, Paul, they're both sort of vulnerable and disarmed because of that. They're uneasy. They don't feel like they fit. They're They're, uh, a piece that doesn't fit. Out of step. Now, let's go back to just the the biggest idea here of Die Hard, the building, right? Nakatomi represents wealth. It, uh, you know, excessive (laughs) wealth. You know, obviously Die Hard's done at a time where I think there's a little bit of a fear of like, the Japanese, like yes. the Japanese are coming. They're going to take over, you know, and, and they have this structure that's more impressive than anything else in the Los Angeles sky. I think one of the reasons why it's in Los Angeles is because you can put that up and it looks like a skyscraper. It looks, you know, that's an impressive it building. Stands out yeah, against it stands that skyline. Out. Yeah. And so look, that's Kevin's house. I mean, he's, that's the big tuna. That, that's the, the house that Marv and, uh, and Harry, like they, they identify as, that's our that's the big score inside that house is the big score yes they've pulled off other things other operations we could say that you know the uh the the freeing you know like this other that's in the past have figured it out but that house represents the same thing it's wealth they know inside that house they're going to get the wealth that they need that's the big score they have for their holiday season well not to mention that at the beginning of the movie, Joe Pesci is masquerading as a police officer yes, trying to get into the house and sort yes. of like make everyone feel comfortable. 
similarly to the way that Hans is like, I'm a leftist, I guess, freedom fighter fighting for my comrades in arms when really he's just running a heist in the background, right? Like well, there's this I, sort I'd of also, similarity. I'd also say that like, it's the costuming of it, right? Because it's sort of like, there is something about him dressing in a certain way that allows you to feel like, oh, is it like, he doesn't look like a terrorist. Hans doesn't look like mm -hmm. a, a movie terrorist that we were associated with. Again, like, you know, so we meet, you know, we meet, uh, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Joe Pesci's character in this police costume. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's putting on an air, yep. like trying to create this other version of himself. Uh, we never get to see what Hans looks like. But although in that that security footage, we kind of see a, a picture of what Hans may dress like normally. Totally. Like, you know, where they, yes. And, yeah. and and to go once even further than that, it sets up this really interesting, cool, dramatic irony. So one of the things that's great about Die Hard, Paul, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. So one of the things that's interesting about Die Hard is that the, one of the great, you know, McTiernan's a, a dramatist, right? He's a he's yes. a Shakespeare guy. He called uh, he called Die Hard his midnight's Midsummer Night's Dream, right? And one oh, thing he does this. better than anybody is dramatic irony. So there's a point in the movie when we know that Hans is Hans. McLean is offering him a cigarette. The, he takes the German cigarettes. He he sort of quizzes him, "What's your name?" And you know, Rickman well, yes. goes Clay, Bill yeah. Clay. And then he looks up and looks for the name on the screen. And we as an audience are so caught up in that. There's a moment later in the movie where in home alone i should say where kevin almost gets hit by the van and he turns and this he looks it, right. and he go and uh pesci who's incredible goes Amazing. all right merry christmas that's the worst joe pesci impression <laughs> possible yeah. but then he glimmers and kevin knows kevin recognizes him as the cop like there's this from the tooth from the tooth there's yeah. these things that we know as an audience that like do the characters know does he know that but that's the he's same guy? putting it but he like we see like they make a very like they even ding it with like a little sound effect right in the beginning like dink like when he's out there as the cop like hey kid don't worry about right. it like you see that you know so it is like it's not saying like we believe we know kevin's onto it like we know right you know and so he's he's equally as smart as mclean is about his surroundings and seeing what's going he's on he's like a cop he's a detective in that moment right and that's one yes. thing that this that there are a lot of cops in die hard there's only one detective right and that's something yes. that is so like he's always a little ahead of the game he's always a little smart and everyone underestimates him right you know rickman's like what are you john wayne rambo and yeah. they're like he's just a kid how much damage can a little kid do and like he is on to everything before anybody else is well there's a point i wanted to make about the cops because there was another story beat that struck me as again almost identical and almost structurally in the same place which is that both john mcclain and kevin when they're in the situation that they're in they call for help yes and, and guess what happens nothing the police are fucking useless yeah <laughs> they are they're like bureaucratic they're they're you know he gets passed from pillar to post they don't take him very seriously well, and eventually they send a lazy beat cop to kind there's of nobody but by yeah. get out but by right? the way you you're even missing one more element there the donuts the donut. We got our cop eating a donut, and we meet Al Powell getting the donuts at the Seven Eleven. Or Twinkies. Right, right. Sorry, I would like yeah, to yeah. throw out a quick uh, award to that donut for being the most delicious looking donut I've oh, ever seen. Every so time good. I watch it, I'm like, phone oh, I just well. want a donut. <laughs> Incredible! Uh, it really is a good. Um, another small comparison. This is probably too uh, too small to reference, but I'll do it. No, so when we it. first, you know, when we first uh, bump into Die Hard, you know, they get into the building and they're talking about the Laker game. He shoots, you know, go magic yep. to Kareem. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of Michael Jordan in this movie. So, yes. you know, that's an L.A. movie talking about L.A. NBA, Chicago movie talking about Chicago NBA. Uh, there also is a basketball clearly in shot that says Skyhook, which I also think is a Kareem thing, too. So 
Uh, we got our basketball. Uh, we got, you know, so we have an homage to I think to there's Kareem. an Isaiah Thomas uh, mm-hmm. thing in the background, yes, too, yeah. at one point. So, you know, that, um, yeah. Playboy. Playboy Dirty oh, Magazine. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So when McLean famously, one of my favorite modes in like, girls, as he runs by. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Home Alone, and Kevin finding the Home Alone, no clothes on anyone's, disgusting. I also think that the, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho moment, when yeah. he's wearing the shirt, is equivalent to when kevin sets up all the the uh, statues and marquees like it's kind of like this is the first time that in the in the case of diehard they know we're dealing with a formidable foe in home alone they're completely tricked by it and he buys himself more time and that's part of what's so great about this movie one of the things that we talked about when we did diehard a year ago is that McLean is always on the run, right? He's a survival. Right. It's all survival for him. And once Kevin knows like something is up, he's just trying to delay the inevitable. And in in the in the delaying of the inevitable, he has to come to terms with his like own mistakes with his mother in the way that McLean has to come to terms with his the mistakes with his wife. Like there's there's something about the redemptive Christmas story that like is culturally significant that they fit into both these movies in like a really well, interesting way. I agree. And I'm, I'm pulling at some real small threads here, but I want to just go back to the Playboy for a second and say that, you know, uh, there's a great moment in Die Hard where the picture frame is turned around, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, and look, the same thing when he sees his Buzz's girlfriend, like, ugh, like, you know, oh, she, you know, uh, and it's like, you know, like there's all these little, like, you know, now look, there's going to be, there, there are only two criminals in this movie, right? So you're going to be like, well, well, how do you pull that all together? And I, I would say that because this movie is a cartoon, we talked about this idea of like the the action here is very much like a Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote film or a, a short. I would say that Harry and Marv serve to be all all the all the all the people that McLean dispatches because he can't kill everybody right. like he doesn't you know like but there are little moments in which he does uh dispatch I, you could you could make an argument that the supermarket uh checkout person and <laughs> and uh and the um uh sorry the, the, uh, the pizza delivery guy. him across the ice oh, I was gonna say the pizza delivery guy who he tricks into being uh killed or or, or you know, runs out with the tip. You know, those are those could be like little mini kills. Like Kevin gets one up on adults, and I would say McLean gets one up on these terrorists by killing them. But yes, he gets away from the cop on the ice. He gets the pizza delivered. He gets out of the supermarket without an issue. Uh, and the closest that he gets to being caught is like uh, a little moment in the beginning of Die Hard when he's first on the run uh, is the toothbrush moment. You know, is this? Uh, you know, uh, you know, we don't have. You know, I feel like there's like a little. Okay, we don't know what we're dealing with. Now he does. Now he gets what he's dealing with. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, unfortunately because Marley, but uh, you know, Virginia Bell Johnson is kind of, you know, they're a little bit at odds in the beginning, right? right? A little bit like you know they like they don't really they don't automatically bond. So I, I would buy that as part of the Marley. They story also don't line, make assumptions about each other. They make assumptions right. about they each to, other. They have right? to learn who's to trust driving each this other, guy, right? Stevie's right. car. Who's right? driving this car, Stevie Wonder yeah. versus like. Buzz being like, he murdered his whole family. Yes, right? yeah. And like, that's another Christmas thematic idea, is the idea that like, you know, judge not lest you be judged, right? If you want to think about it in those terms, like they have, as Phil, you were saying, they have to come to terms with each other, right? Like that's a big part yeah. of what it is. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more. I'd like to drill down a little bit more yeah. on our two heroes. But before we do, uh, let's take a very quick break and then we'll be back with anatomy of a Christmas action movie. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Uh, we're now into our uh, our main section of the show, which is the uh, anatomy of a Christmas action movie, where we list the tenets. We live in a Christmas world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, are, there are no friends on Christmas I Eve. I don't know. <laughs> it's as close as we can get. Leave uh, us alone, we did a whole tenet thing. You know about it, but we talked about it with you. It's a it's a it's a whole thing. It's a whole. You know, uh, to me, albatross. you know, look. I mean, the, the the premise, you know, the premise of this movie is don't go to France. <laughs> I think honestly, bad things happen if you go to right. France. Uh, and if you send your son to the, if don't spill milk, don't spill milk all over the tickets and 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 pizza right Bef- the night before the flight. Yeah, that gets you banished to the yes. to the attic. <laughs> so the premise of this film is everybody knows it, but just real quick, just to lay the table. After an unfortunate mix-up leads to an eight-year-old boy named Kevin McAllister being left home alone while his family are on vacation. Kevin must learn to fend for himself and defend the house from two determined and persistent burglars who call themselves the wet bandits now as we as you were sort of saying like what i think one of the things i think is so amazing about this film first of all the fact that they make an outlandish outrageous premise you forgot one of your kids really kind of believable oh the way way they ground that is perfect it really is like i watch that and it's the counting the other kid love that looks like him It, it i love that kid it's it's a great it's also the rush of the morning it, there's so many elements there because you need to you need to buy that a family could forget one of their kids. But in a mad dash to an airport, I have two kids, and there are moments where you're just booking mm-hmm. it. And there, that, I buy that that melee. You everyone thinks someone else has got that kid. It's like you don't you're not your guard is slightly down because you know there's so many people to look after the whole unit. But the other the other part of it. You know, it, it, that's obviously the central premise of the film and, and the hook of it and the title and everything, right? Like a great, great conceit. But as you were just sort of alluding to, this film is is, is like is, there's so many dimensions to it because it's uh, a heist movie, a siege movie, a home invasion movie, a coming of age movie. To to some extent, is more like coming of age as a younger person than usually that's like teenage years. But he learns to fend for himself. He learns to be. It's a big thematic idea in the movie. Absolutely, well, you know. I mean, the other thing I would say about this movie that people often don't talk about, and I think it's a small detail, but it's worthy of mentioning, it's a wish movie. Right? Yes, because yes. he makes a wish uh, and something happens. Like it like when he says that, there is a moment of like a lightning crack. There is like a it's a magical moment yeah, why they yeah. oversleep. I think there's a shot of the moon or something. Yes. There's just, like a just sort of punctuates it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's subtly. like something happens in that moment that's not like that's supernatural in a way like it. And I, and I feel like it's a small detail, but it's definitely there. I mean, it's like it knocks out the phone lines, which also gives you another mm-hmm. beautiful way not to get in touch with him. I mean, that idea like, ah, mom, my bell's going to have to take a couple days with this. I was like, so great, smart. like great. And it's only two days. Like, I mean, it really is only two days. It does feel longer. I think it's like because it's like, right, because she says she couldn't get a direct flight for two days. And then she does get standby on that mm-hmm. same day and then is driven by John Candy. So I think all in all, it's just two days, although the movie feels like it takes place over like a, a larger court. Yeah, it's but it's only two days, right. I think. Yeah. I was trying to I was trying to figure that stuff out too. Well, one of the, I have a question about this, but what I think we should also just say is in, in terms of making sure that the obvious point has been made about the connection to Die Hard is that this is a uh, uh, a movie about Characters pulling a heist, and it's mainly centered around one location, mm-hmm. right? As you already kind of uh, 
alluded to earlier to some extent. But, um, you know, so on that level alone, it, it is very much like it, that's a clear corollary. Yes. I mean, uh, 100 percent. It's like that is that is it. It's it's the it's it's the big tuna. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's 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 the bearer bonds. It's, you know, DVD players replace bearer they bonds. They even say, uh, I think Pesci says like uh, odd marketable securities, which yes, sounds very yes. bearer bond-esque when they're like planning the heist, you know? I love how he says that with his, he's like odd marketable, like he's eating them. Like it's just so yeah. good. Right. 640 million. Um, but you know, fundamentally as well, it's it's a holiday movie, it's a Christmas movie, it's a family movie. And I was just thinking about how John Hughes. You know, we're at this time of year where we're hopefully you know you're home with your families, you're enjoying you're enjoying the holidays, and the John Hughes movies are kind of ubiquitous, right. right? Like, uh, and and we were just come out of Plane, Trains and Automobiles for Thanksgiving, which is sort of very closely indelibly associated with that holiday. Mm-hmm. And this point now we have Home Alone and we have um, Christmas Vacation and all of these movies. What is it that makes John Hughes movies so special and so timeless? Mm. You know, I thought about a lot about this and there's something about John Hughes that captures the American experience of being an outsider and wanting to be in. I mean, that's a lot of the teen movies are that right. Kevin's also an outsider in this movie a little bit, but also he's a a brilliant observer of humans and parents. It's like, these are not archetypes. This is not like the asshole dad, the busy dad, like they feel rich and lived in. And, you know, even when you're talking about something like the breakfast club, which are like the nerd, the jock, the, you know, that the the premise of that movie is we are beyond our labels. Mm. We are more than mm. this. And I think that that is ultimately at the core of John Hughes' movies. I think that's why all of his movies feel incredibly special because they are, we see ourselves in them. You know, I think that as an adult, I see myself sometimes as Del Griffith and as Steve Martin's character, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Neil. That's such a you fascinating know. take, Paul. Yeah. Like, I, I yeah. love this. I think he invented the archetypes that we go by now to some extent, yeah, like the it, nerd, the jock. Like, like, it trades in archetypes, but then peels back the onion, so to speak, to reveal the hum- the humanity underneath. I love that take. That's like really, really It's also quintessentially American in the way that if you grow up yeah. here, I think Chicago, Chicago suburbs, that, that represented something in the late 80s or early 90s whether it's ferris bueller's day off this whatever right. like well, beca- i think because town. of him i agree i think that he he created this idea of chicago like chicago is a suburb with a city right and so most people uh or a, a majority of people watching movies i would imagine live in a suburb right. you know and it's like in the city is close but it's not right there and i felt like it was like you know this movie never goes to the city but we feel that that energy and i think it's sort of like the to go one step further with like peeling back the layers of the onion, we all want people to see us for who we are, who we really are. And I feel like that's kind of at the core of this. Like we can forget those in moments. Like Kevin forgets who he is because his mother, she's like terrible and doesn't want to be with her, but that's not who he is, right? Like he actually loves his family. He wants to be home with his family. You know, it's like, they're like these, you know, I think Steve Martin gets so caught up with, just getting home, he forgets to be a human, right? And then like, yeah. oh, he gets to get back to it. Like, And I feel like we all have had that. It's a, perfect for Christmas movies, too. It's like, no, no, no. We are more than than our job. We are more than our thing. We are more than our, you know. 
and more than our mistakes. Yes, yes, yes. Well. yes Which goes yes, back yes. to right? George Bailey, right? Like, and it goes back to It's yeah. a Wonderful Life. I also very quickly, you know, you're talking about Chicago. I want to mention the actual, like, great Chicago, uh, you know, movie, uh, suburb going to the movies, which is Adventures in Babysitting, right? Which is the great movie oh, about yeah. how, like my little suburban community is safe and the city is this like scary nightmare right and that's a chris columbus movie so this was like floating in the air then right like chicago had this weird grip on american suburb movie culture it was it's like right in the middle as well right, right? like it's like the middle it's almost like every uh, american every city to some extent right. even though it, there is a cultural specificity new york is chicago. too harsh yep yes right chicago is more like Oh, we we work in Chicago and we live in the suburbs. It's more you know? relatable. Yeah. Yes. There's more there's a universality to it, right? I want to go one more step further on John Hughes mm. too, which is what may make his films incredibly universal is at the core of a lot of them is family. Right? So you can say like even though they're not present, family are the bookends of Breakfast Club. Family is obviously mm. a part of this movie in a big way. Ferris Bueller's Day Off they're like the parents are trying to do the right thing. And I think it's like this idea too of like eighties parents mm. or parents in general, like national lampoons vacation. It's like, we're trying to do the right thing. We want to plan a vacation. We want to get the right car. We, you know, and it's like, and in the want and the attempt to do things right, you also fuck up things as well. You make mistakes. You, parenting. you goof. <laughs> yeah. Parenting. It's parenting. Right. right. And I think that that's why as adults, as three adults here that are watching home alone, we're all going like, I love this movie because now I'm relating with the parents. I'm also, seeing, you yeah. know, it's like there, there is a forgiveness to all of this. Like yeah. Kevin's parents are not bad. Ferris Bueller's parents are not bad. Like they're like they they're smarter. They're trying. They don't always succeed. It's a flawed humanity to yes. it, right? That, that I think makes it leaves us feeling better about ourselves when we watch it, when you go through this experience, because you're like, oh, this character has has failed or made a mistake or screwed something up, but their heart is usually in the right place. They're, you know, there's usually these films aren't full of like, even 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 Harry and Marvin, this are, yeah. there's a, there's a so softness and vulnerability to them, even though they're, they're bad people. Well, you know, it's like, it's interesting because as much as you think they're going to kill Kevin, <laughs> They're mad, right? They keep on getting hurt and getting mad, but they're in, <laughs> yeah, their their really thing isn't like they're not like oh we want to kill this kid, right? They're right. Not, but they're like it's like it's almost like they got slapped in the face so many times. They're like okay, all right, now I'm gonna beat the shit out of this kid, like 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 like. But there is this element where they're pushed to the brink, and I do even like that idea too, where um the dumbness of like where the wet bandits like they create more destruction than they ever needed to create. It's such a right. sad. Like, like dumb leaving thing. the like, oh, on, it's so like it's just foul. It's foul and right. Terrible. It's foul. Um, well, why yeah. don't we just talk about that? We, we're, we'll go slightly out of order, but yeah. while we're on the subject, let's talk about the the villains, and then we'll move on to our other section. Because yeah. I did have a question about that as we're as we're into it, which is who is the worst of of the two? Who's worse, Harry or Marv? Wow, Marv. Marv is a blunt instrument that is used by Harry. Yeah. Like, like Harry is, uh, you know, Marv is the gun. Harry is the person holding the gun. It's like you go check it out. You, you know, the, the um, Hans and I, Carl a little Hans, bit. Hans yeah. and everybody right. else actually. Yeah, I right. think Hans and like almost everybody else in that room. He's like the hench. They're the henchmen. He weaponizes right. yeah, these exactly. people for his for his right. purpose, which it's, is it's stealing. It's you know, it's Harry's plan. It's his idea. He is the mastermind. You know, he is the person who is, um, who is smart enough. A again, like. The way that Hans says, 
you know, when they're trying to figure out how to open the vault. Well, we can't open the vault. He's like, you know, and he knows that when they shut down the electricity, they'll be able to get in. In this moment, he knows, okay, at 621, that light's going to go on. At 625, that light's going to go on. Like, you know, he knows he's got the rhythm of the right, whole street. Right. Like he's got it all figured out. No, well, it's true because they're, yeah, the same kind of like professionalism goes on, right? And like, there's a little bit in, in, um, you know, remember the moment in Die Hard when, uh, remind me, Phil, because you are the expert, who makes the bets? Who is the one who's like, they, it's like, it's Theo, Theo and, and Carl, Carl have this moment where they're like, yes. I told you. And then like he slipped, one of them slips the other a 20 after Hans right. blows away to Whether they're going to kill And Hans Takagi, gives them a look that's yeah. like, hey, or whether he'll, we're yeah. professionals here. Right. And that's yeah. kind of true with Harry when he's like, why are you putting... Why are you putting like why are you blocking the sinks? Why are you doing this? Like that's sick, right? Like he 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 feigns a kind of professionalism despite doing like, you know, being a <laughs> right, thief yeah, yeah, and being yeah. a crook and like not being a great guy, right? Like he he has this layer of decency, which is why I think he's the better of the two. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I also think that there's a, isn't there a moment like I think that you're to believe and uh that Hans is a good guy. Like he wouldn't have killed Takagi. But we also understand, as the movie goes on, the, the plan all along was to blow up everybody on that roof and escape, right? Like, right. the plan was to create this mass destruction and death. Mm. Like, that was, Good that point. was you know, and I, I think that there is something about this. And maybe we could go back to that idea of, like, well, maybe that idea to kill Kevin is, like, part of it. It's like, well, yeah, we don't know that that's part of it. But maybe in the back of his mind, he's never going to tell Marv, we're going to kill this kid. But he knows... Well, we're gonna kill this kid. Like, you know, like maybe, you know, he doesn't ever mm. reveal it, but you know, maybe, maybe that's something in his mind. He's like, well, if it comes down to it, we're gonna have to kill this kid. Well, and especially because the well, house well, is the big kahuna. It's like the two, yeah. it's the one that he wants yeah. the most, right? And like at that point, he's so like filled with rage that he has no other, you know, no other choice. Like, I don't think it, in the same way that it doesn't go the way Hans wants it to go, it doesn't right. go the way that Harry wants it to go. Right. Well, let's talk about our hero, uh, Kevin McAllister, because I think. He is a very McLean-like character in his own way. Um, also, because he spends a lot of the movie alone um, doing monologues and soliloquies, right? Like he's talking to himself a lot. You know, he's you forget sometimes what this must have been like for the actor on set, for yeah. Bruce Willis, for like the first 30 minutes or so of the movie. He's running around just saying shit out loud as he's trying to process what's happening. And Kevin kind of does the same thing. And of course, he's also... Um, He's very ingenious. There's a sort of indefatigability uh, about him as well that I think is is similar. What what is it about this character in your minds for Kev, of Kevin McAllister that makes him such a? Why did he become such an icon? Why is he such a compelling, rootable mm. hero? And this is a kid who had really just done Uncle Buck. You what? know what is it about him that just captured the world's imagination? It's the same thing that captured the world's imagination about John McClane. Like, John McClane is a relatable, he's an everyman, right? He's put in an extreme situation and he steps up to the plate. He's not Schwarzenegger. He's not Stallone in the in the world of, like, action movies. Like, you know, he he's not the guy who's like, I'll take down 15 guys. Mm. Like, you know, like, you would believe there's a world in which he's never fired his gun at anyone, you know, uh, as a cop. Like, that's not established that he is a, a killer. And I think Kevin's the same way. He's a Hey, this is every man. He's right. a kid. He's just like me. He's home alone. He's not super smart. He's having fun. He likes ice cream. He got into trouble with his mom. Uh, you know, and, and the way he defends his house isn't like um isn't because he's the smartest kid on the block. It's not because he knows math. It's not because he like create like he's just like, oh, I'm gonna 
I'm going to use everything at my disposal to save the day. The same way John McClane's like, I'm going to use everything that I know to, to do this, whether it's like tying, you know, he ties the, um, the fire hose around his waist and jumps Mm -hmm. up the building to save himself. It's like, he didn't, you know, he's never done that before. Kevin's never done any of this stuff before, but he's much like the treehouse yeah. sequence, right? Like the treehouse sequence is yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I think they're both resourceful and they both they have cunning and they only figure it out maybe under the stress that they're in, right? With the exception of like you can they kind of figure out who they are when when metal, you know, when the when the brake hits the metal or whatever that expression is. Also, they both screw up. That's very right. relatable. People who screw up at Christmas. That's a time-honored tradition in American movie history, whether it's George Bailey or anybody you can lean back to, right? They're they're looking to redeem themselves. And I think that that makes a character really... Uh, it makes us root for them, right? Whether it's, you know, McLean or it's Kevin or it's George Bailey or it's Martin Riggs and Lethal Weapon. Like, they're recovering from something. Right. Yeah. And as you said, that as you were sort of touching on earlier, when they start the movie, they both have this sort of the most important relationship in Kevin's life is with his with his mom. Um, and the most re- important relationship with, in John McClane's life is is with his wife, Holly. Right. And their relationships are both fractured at the beginning because of their behavior. Kevin is not not great at the beginning no. of the movie. He's kind of like whiny, bratty, difficult. He's bugging her when she's on the phone. He's being rude. He's just not, he's not, he's not doing anything that a kid wouldn't do. It's perfectly normal behavior, but it's also not like, he's not like an angel. There's a little bit you of know? cruelty he's, at he's the beginning of this movie. Oh, the beginning yeah. of this movie you know? is cruel. Like my wife was watching with me and she's like, everyone kind of sucks at the beginning of this movie. Now, it's relatable, but it's like, I thought this, there's a little bit of you, if you haven't seen it in a while, you're like, I thought this was a Christmas movie. Everyone's being so mean. And then you realize families together yeah. in a house at Christmas can get hairy. Under stress. It can get hairy. Yeah. And then there's a travel component to it, which is another stress. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I want to talk about, about the, you know, the lady of this picture about um, uh, uh, Kevin's mom, um, Kate McAllister, played by the wonderful Catherine So good. Hara. She's so good in this You know, movie. she's kind of the protagonist of of her own odyssey in this movie. And, and to your point earlier, Paul, I was thinking, you know, what, what I love about this is, is like, you know, is she a bad mother or is she just, is she a brilliant parent? Is she's kind of both. And that's what parenting is right. To some extent. Like, I think the moment that solves or that tells you everything you need to know about her is the moment where the father, who I also think is a good dad says, look, there's nothing more we can do in this airport. Let's go home. We'll make a phone call. We'll figure it out there. And she's like, I'm not leaving this airport. That to me is yeah. the moment where she's like, she's showing you I'm a good mom. Like we fucked up. It, like she takes it on herself. She doesn't blame anyone. I mean, really, they should be blaming the older sister. She did the head count. You know, um, I mean, also, I love that line in Home Alone, which is so funny um, where they say, um, OK, uh, get on in there. Just take whatever seat you want. I'm like, when was air travel ever like that oh my god take whatever yeah. <laughs> that chill whatever like, coach yeah. seat you want uh sure i mean yeah, it's like what that is would it? really Southwest? fly now they, they love that yeah. they love that yeah when you get on a plane now when you just take whatever take seat whatever you seat you want. you want um right but i think that that's the moment and then obviously when she gets in the thing with john candy but she is she does everything she is resourceful like kevin you get where he gets his resourcefulness from like she's trading her earrings and her watches and she's manipulating people Mm. to get back home. Same way that Holly Gennaro manipulates Hans to get in his good graces until he finds out 
that they are together, right? Like that's when he's like, oh, right. Similarly, they shed their material yes. wealth, right? Be too, like much like um, a Holly sheds the the Rolex, which was so, which is so tied up in symbolism of a kind of gross, grasping, capitalistic impulses. Uh, um, Kate sh- sheds, as you just said, sheds her her watch her her earrings it's like basically wealth doesn't matter when push comes to shove what comes to matter is what's really important is the per- the people i love my family so that's an interesting not to uh, mention that she has a redemption arc you know the movie doesn't really the tension in the movie doesn't resolve until she says kevin i'm sorry and he runs to her right, right. which is such like a wonderful yeah. parent moment because anytime you screw up with your kids like they're waiting for that yeah. a little bit. And it's very touching. It's very moving that at the end it of the is. film. Yeah. Oh, Kevin. You don't I'm see sorry. it too often because I feel like it's it's hard to say to a to your child, uh, hey, I screwed yeah. up, I'm sorry. You know, because often it's the expectation is we're modeling how things should be. So to admit, like, oh yeah, I really messed up with that. Um, I love that moment because, as you just said, I, I'm really seeing a whole of John Hughes' filmography through a whole another lens after what you were saying, Paul, about like how he takes archetypes and then humanizes yeah. them, and 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 it makes it just so much more like relatable and kind of well, yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I, that apology to the to a child is very progressive for 1990, and I'd yeah. also argue, you know, there's a part of this like if Kevin just played ball. And was okay with uh, Kiernan Culkin, you know, and just and just like wasn't such not a spoiled brat, but just like just got on with his family a little bit. He's also at fault. Like he was put up to the attic and then they was like, I don't want to be with anyone. I want to be alone. And all these things are like it's not saying he deserved to be left home alone, but he also was a part of the reason why he was left home alone. You know, he's he screwed, yeah, up. He screwed up and he he. Yeah, he's responsible. He's responsible to a certain extent, which I think, and he's a real person, yes. right? Yes, in the way that kids are annoying, like you know, they're annoying sometimes, right? It's just part of it. Like, doesn't mean you know you love a kid less or whatever. But I'm finding it as a parent watching movies now and seeing that when the kids are actually, you know, Joseph Mazzello in The River Wild, he's very intense, right? Which is a movie we just talked about. Kevin in this, like. They, they, they're irritating, right? They need something and it's hard to take sometimes. And like, you want to be like, go to your room, get away from me. It's hard. And then, but the, the great thing about that is that they, they, they let that be real. You yeah, know? absolutely. Well, I want to move on to our next section, but before I do, I want to ask each of you guys just, just to cover the action real quick. Do you each have a favorite booby trap? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the handle Kevin, on uh, fire unleashes. is the most painful one. And I think that that is very that much is a Raiders of the Lost Ark. The reference to uh, Fritz oh, yeah, Lang's wow. M, I believe, right? Yeah. Wait, reference yeah. to what? Fritz Lang's M, isn't it? That's why it's an oh M. Oh my God. This is, Listen, pause. This is the only podcast where you can get a Fritz Lang reference in a podcast about Die Hard. Love we're it. talking about Home Alone. That's what I love. Yeah, Fritz Lang. And I, uh, Paul, you just said uh, Raiders, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought of. But uh, that's that definitely the the dumber version wow. of what you're what you've just said so i'm gonna everyone watch m right after home alone they really they're a great double feature go for <laughs> yeah, it christmas double bill did you, you have know, a favorite i, I think of, that uh... uh you know there are there are great moments in this movie we actually did an episode of um black monday i think it was the second to last episode in our third season where we are in a cabin in the woods and we're being stalked. We're being killed. We're somebody's trying to kill us. And um, Regina uh, gets. She had. It's such a weird. We had to like mess the timeline up a little bit. Like she had gotten the script 
for Home Alone and she had read it. And so we start using all of Kevin's booby traps in. Uh, she's like, oh, I remember in this script that I read for this movie that's coming out, Home Alone, he did this and this. And then we try to like recreate some Home Alone traps in the thing. Uh, oh my I goodness. Love. We, I gotta watch uh, it's that. It's a really fun, dumb thing. Um, but talk about the ubiquity of this movie in culture. You could, yes. that, this is a movie that would hold up to that. Everyone knows what you're talking about. I think the things that I like about this movie are the things that are accessible and make me feel pain. Whether it's the um, the ice on the stairwell, like wetting down the stairs is such a simple thing. And when Marv takes that flip down, like when you when he had that one slip and he goes down on the back of his head, you're like, oh, that hurts. The foot on the on the uh, on the uh, the shards Ooh, of gosh, the yeah. glass, like the, those are the things that make me go, oof. You know, sometimes it's like, yes, a can to the head is powerful and whatever, but. Man, it's it's those the the that the yeah. shards of glass. It's like the paper cut is worse yes, than getting your head. Yeah. Right. Or the micro kind of machines. Thing. If you're yes. a parent and you've stepped on a yeah. sharp plastic kid's <laughs> yeah. toy, it's like awful. Yeah. It's so painful. But the but the obviously the bare feet with the Christmas ornaments to me was a was straight up shoot the glass moment, right? Like yeah. that was another corollary right there. Um, all right, guys. Well, let's um, let's take off our ugly Christmas sweaters and put on our tuxedos. I'm leaving my ugly sweater on over my tuxedo. Sorry, that's just what I'm doing. <laughs> the the Die Hard Oscars, aka the Xmas Action mm. Movie Awards. So um, I have um, the, our first our first category here is the the John McClane Yippee Award for Best Line. Mm. Uh, there are a few there are a few zingers here. I've picked three. Pl- feel free to add. Um, Kate's line, uh, I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike, if it costs me everything I own, if I have to sell my soul to the devil himself, I'm going to get home to my Good line. son. Um, I also was really quite touched with Marley's line where he says, uh, you can be too old for a lot of things, but you're never too old to be oh, afraid. Oh, I love that. Which I also thought was kind of like, kind of deep and, and touching. That actor is of great. of course... Oh, he's wonderful, and we're going to come to him in a second. But there's there's one, of course, that is the the Yippee literal catchphrase equivalent from the classic movie Angels with Filthy Souls. I don't know if you feel like saying it, Paul, uh, but I <laughs> yeah. feel like because I you as your professional actor, you do it a lot better than me. The, I, I uh, think it's the right line we're thinking about, right? It's it's about it's about money, right? That line. Yes. Okay. Great. So oh, it would yes, be uh, yes, exactly. Keep the change, you filthy animal. I mean, it's a great line. See, By the way, so much I did not know I that that was a could. fake movie until many years later. Me too. Yeah, same. I, I only that found was a real out, movie. Like- yeah, I thought it because it feels I like feel a real like that movie. should be played by Robert Prosky, like the guy who's like for some reason, like why isn't Robert Prosky in this movie? He feels like by osmosis somehow he should be in that. He should be playing that part. Although I, the actor quick is great. shout out to oh for the kids. My when he says for the kids when she sees the magazine or that the are uh, yeah. the, the army men. I just, just think that that's toy a great. Soldiers, well, I will yeah. also say too what's kind of great about that moment. I just want to like talk about Home Alone for one second. Say. The idea that he puts in that as the dirty movie that he wants to watch or the adult movie makes this movie more mm-hmm. timeless. If he put in like Rambo or something like that, mm-hmm. which would probably be more akin mm-hmm. to what that kid would want to be watching, not an old black and white movie. Like, you know, um, yeah, it actually keeps the movie a little bit more timeless. A black and white movie, it's it's an odd choice, you know, in choice. the grand scheme of things, because yeah. you would go right to an R movie. That's, yeah. like a, that's like a 1940s you know, film noir, like, it's like a John Huston. Yeah, like yeah. like, it's a Cagney yeah, type Cagney, uh, Cagney's riff, much right? Yeah. 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 That is so funny. Okay. Well, 
for me, that's that's the clear winner. Yeah, I mean, that's such a memorable line. And it also, animal. there's some feet. Just literally saying it makes you feel like 15. Oh, I better. love it. I mean, yeah. Keep <laughs> you, you um, yeah, go ahead. All right, let's move on to um, the uh, Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. And I have three nominees for you guys. The aforementioned Roberts Blossom as Marley, who I think delivers a wonderful performance. Um, Kieran Culkin in his, uh, <laughs> his largely silent but very effective role as Fuller. I wish he had one line. Um, it was for fuck me, off. I just wish he said that once in the, me, in, the, in, the movie, in the movie. That would be great. In, in reference to um, the, yeah. uh, the show. Yes, it's right? a succession. Um, yes, exactly. Just, just in case anyone yeah, was exactly. confused. Um, uh, but for me, there's only one winner. Which is John Candy as Gus Polinski, yes. the Polka King of the Midwest. Yeah, over. I mean, amazing. Let's can we talk about him sure. for a second because he's like I have this. He is. I love this movie, but he's my favorite part yeah. of this whole film, as he is in pretty much every film that he's in, and he means so much to a me. A lot of and my heart family. in that guy. A lot of heart. The oh, best. Just wonderful, and apparently he. That was all improvised. He was paid $414 for 23 hours of work in one day. Yes. all a favor uh, to John Hughes. I mean, what do you make of I mean, you're you're highly skilled in the improvisational world, Paul. What's your take on like that performance? The, the fact that it was all pretty I much I mean, John Candy to me is truly one of those actors who could do it all that we sometimes did not allow him to do it all. And I think sometimes when he was not calibrated correctly, he did too much of one thing and not enough of the other, right? And um, mm. and I think John Hughes calibrated him great. Uncle Buck is an amazing performance of like empathy and 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 funny and like the scene where he goes to like stop his you know his goddaughter from essentially you know being like date raped is like an amazing section of the film, you know. And um, and here he gets to do it all. Super funny character. You meet him. You love him. He's also John Candy. He's a great cameo. And then. You know, they're playing the instrument and he has this like little moment with her. Like it just get like in this little section, you get every flavor of John Candy and you're just like, God, God damn, this guy's, uh, you know, he's just a hero. He's just like, and that to me is, a, it's a perfect John Candy performance. I know it was like a stressful mm. day for them. Although I look at that and I'm like, I shoot 12 pages a day sometimes. Like, why is that so hard? <laughs> they, sh they shot, they really shot in two locations. One, two people standing, talking to each other and the other on a truck sitting next to each other. There's not... It's not like, oh my God, all the coverage. It wasn't like they shot like um like yeah, an action true. sequence. Like it was like they shot two dialogue yeah. scenes. It's like such an interesting distillation of how production is changed. Yeah, I know. Ball. Like the way you put it that way. You're like the 12 days was like, or you know, those many pages. Oof, but you're like, I can like, you know, you nail 13 pages in the yeah, day. Yeah, just like that, that to me, it's like him complaining about two scenes of two person dialogue scenes. It's like, God bless you. Come I mean, on. you could shoot that before lunch. Like, you know, like, I mean, we're like, we're in, and by the way, both interior sets, like, you know, it's like, it's not too complex. Yeah, no. Oh, by the way, too, I don't think, I, I, and if I gave the impression oh, yeah, that no. there was any complaints about it, I don't think, I don't think there was. No, 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 no. I certainly didn't no, read no, that. He, so no, he had, no, I didn't he has complained about it. John Candy, like, oh yeah, there's always a really, oh, really stressful day. I've read, okay. I've read a lot about this. It complains about oh, okay, how okay. much of it was. Oh, and I was so like, funny. what are you complaining? Like, literally, it's a nothing. Like, these scenes are great, but it was like, maybe it was a lot of Dexter dialogue. I don't know. Maybe it was whatever, like. Well, he's so soulful, you'd never yeah. know. That's the thing that's beautiful. Yeah, about just it. the second he shows up, you're just like, I don't know, he kind of, he's one of the, he's got that rare gift. And uh, I'd say you have this too, Paul, where you just literally see them. He's and a, well, you're a lovely to say that, you know, but I, I also think that he's you know? like one of those guys that's like, 
He is Midwest. We talked about Chicago representing something. Yes, yes. He is mm. the most affable, lovable guy. And I, I and and he uh yeah. And I think that like where Macaulay Culkin broke out was because of Uncle Buck. I think that that's probably one of John Candy's right. best roles, you know, uh, you know, and, and he does some other great performances, but that is truly the best. And, you know, we've really missed out on the A24 John Candy, like what we've gotten from Bill Murray with Broken Flowers and, and Lost in Translation. Yeah. Like, I would have loved to have yeah. that John Candy, like the younger directors who got to put him in something and reinvent John Candy. Or Sandler, the way it's, yes. it happens with Sandler One, one million. Yeah, you know, yes. like they... Because John Candy's uncut yeah, his gems. dramatic work in playing. Well, I mean, amazing. Yeah. At the end I mean, that might be the best John unreal. Candy. Yeah, yeah, it's so hard, but it's like, yeah, he's, he's incredible, incredible yeah. in that. Oh, just love him to death. Just love him so much. All right, let's move on to the um, our final uh, uh, award this week, uh, which is the oh, Dick it. Thornburg Award for Dick of the Movie. I've got four noms: um, Joe Pesci as Harry, Daniel Stern as Marv. Devin Ratray as Buzz and Jerry Bamman as Uncle Frank. Who are you picking, guys? I, I, I'm uh... going to jump in immediately, <laughs> and I'm so happy that you expanded this a little bit. Uncle Frank is the dick of the movie. Uncle Frank is yeah. truly like he represents, <laughs> and I think what I love about Uncle Frank is we talked about revealing humanity and stuff like that. Uncle Frank is the one asshole in this entire movie that's the most irredeemable. Like when he's so excited about the cocktail Franks in France, like the child missing. Like he is stealing things from the airplane. <laughs> he's not like chipping in, in your, your purse. Like he has traveler's yeah. checks, which you could pay for pizza. Tra traveler's checks is cash. Uh, you know, like he does everything. <laughs> he is the biggest asshole, the biggest dick. He is Dick Thornburg, 100%. And I'm so sorry we didn't talk about that earlier. Yes. He and that's the other. Yeah, he is yeah. Dick Thornburg. That's really good. That is really good. I agree. I want to say very quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned John Candy not having his A twenty four period. Devin Ratray has become this incredibly interesting actor. He's in Soderbergh series. He's in that show Full Circle oh, yeah. that came out, and he's in a movie called Blue Ruin. Oh Macon yes, Blair's directorial debut. Which I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it is Phil. If you haven't seen that, uh, Macon Blair's film Blue Ruin, incredible. And oh, right. Rat Ray is scuzzy and just like, oh, he's so, so good in it. Well, he's I such feel a good that, actor. I feel that Buzz, Buzz has a redemptive moment, which mm -hmm. takes him off the hook. Right. You know, uh, whereas Uncle Frank doesn't, right? Buzz, by the end, he kind of says, it's pretty cool you didn't burn a house And Buzz, you know, I also himself, love so. that moment, too, about the whole movie. It's like the mom did all of that to get back at the same exact time as the family. You know, and, and, and you know, that's a beautiful thing, <laughs> yeah. too. Like, the whole family came uh, back, Sisyphus. right? The whole family yeah. came back. Right. And, you know, it wasn't just like right. the mom, you know, it was like, and I love that idea that they were all of them. The dad is not a bad dad mm -hmm. by saying, let's go back home. He's like, let's go do it this way. And it worked out. It worked out the same. But it's like, I know if I was in that situation with my wife, we might have taken that same exact thing. And like, no one's right or wrong. It just is like, but the mom can't sit still. And the dad's like, we, we can, we can logic. It was Spock and Kirk, you know, it's like that kind of. Yeah, no, that's a really good mm -hmm. point. There's always the one parent who like can't. There's like the alpha beta yeah. parent and the beta parent a little bit, you know, to make it. Simple. And look, Buzz loves his brother. I mean, like as much as you know, and I think that there's like these moments and stuff like that. And I feel like, look, they're always gonna be at each other's throats. And I feel like you know, like with Ellis, like I think that Ellis doesn't hate John, but he thinks he's smarter than John, or he can like buddy him up. So if we use that example of like, is Buzz Ellis? There's a similarity there because, like, I'm the older guy. I'm the older brother. I know what's going on. You get out of here. You don't belong in my room. Yeah, you're out of your you're depth. Out I, your got depth. I got like, it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can handle this. You're a trash. Well, let's um, 
We're going to take a very quick break, and then we're going to be back for our final section of the show, which is a special Christmas edition of the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz. We'll be right back. All right, guys, welcome back. We are here for our final section of the show, uh, which is the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz, where the scores can really change. It's going to be three quiz questions. Uh, and as it's Christmas, collaboration is Ooh, mandatory okay. <laughs> because this is the time for a goodwill to all. Okay. Uh, sometimes we have you guys compete, but today okay. you guys you're gonna gonna work together. As there's gonna be three questions, we did really well clue. together can, last time, so I feel good about you this. did. So I want to keep that energy going. Um, so uh, question number one: Which legendary SNL performer auditioned for the role of Santa Claus in the film, but apparently blew the audition? having turned up a little worse for wear. Oh, interesting. All right, so this is 1990, right? So my first thought would have been, you know, Belushi, but I know. I mean, no, right? I mean, so I, I, I'm going to say it's Chris Farley. Is the right answer. Because, oh, it was. Oh, 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 okay, great. Oh, great. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, it was Chris Farley. The part was eventually played by Ken Hudson Campbell, whom you may recognize as the friendly man in the corridor of the motel that Bill Murray oh, keeps so running great. into in, in Groundhog yeah. Day. Oh, you have to see the Warthog! Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> the what a, what a type that guy was. Oh, um, great. Chris Farley would, of course, go on to appear as an enthusiastic beat cop in Airheads, a.k.a. Die Hard in a Radio Station. There it is. Right. Uh, question number two. Which member of the Die Hard cast is actually related to Macaulay Culkin. Oh, Holly Gennaro. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Oh, wow. That is, that is correct. That. She's his aunt or his godmother. That's right. One of those wow. two. Yeah. She is Culkin's yeah. aunt. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia has two brothers, one of whom is actor Kit Culkin and a sister Candace Culkin, and she's the aunt of actors Macaulay, Kieran, and Rory Culkin. So, yeah, wow. fun fact. Um, all right, this is our last... Doing great, you are. You're Paul, killing we're it, guys. Great. We're doing great. We're doing good. Um, it's time for everyone's favorite section of the show, Convoluted Corner. Corner, 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 um, can you tell me the surname? Is it is it come up a lot? And can we call Al? You can call out. You can phone Let's a friend. You can it's call Al Powell. You can radio Al Powell for a clue. I mean, I'm gonna say it's Hans. I mean, my gut would be it's Hans Gruber, right? But like they would call. But no. Harry, but maybe Harry. 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 Does they say it at least once in the movie? I don't think it ever gets said. Okay. Maybe. But I can. Uh, oh. Oh. I. Okay. I think I understand who. All right. Because it has to be a main character, it's right? A, it's a memorable character. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay, we've been talking about this character, I believe, a lot throughout the film. Some character we've only referred to by their last name multiple times. We think it might be his first name. It's not Ellis. It's Harry Ellis. That ah. is the right answer. It's Harry Ellis. Paul. Nailed it. I had a, I had a little Incredible. gut that Ellis has a good last Incredible. name. Christmas miracle. You pulled that out. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and snow falls from the sky here at yeah. Die Hard on the Blank Towers. Incredible. In, uh, in Century City. That's it, folks. Well done. Um, congratulations. Um, Paul. Wait, I have one quick yeah. question for Paul. Yeah, yeah. Paul, is there a part? We asked you this with Clear and Present Danger, and I yes, loved your answer. Is there a part in this movie that you'd want to play? Oh, well, this is a great one. I mean, look, uh, what I would love to play, you know, I thought about this in watching it, and I'm like, what is, 
I mean, there's the un... Well, look, I'll, I'll take your compliment and say the John Candy role because only a one day of shooting and, you know, I got a lot of stuff to do. But, uh, and a measly 12 but, pages. So you gotta... Yeah, I mean, um, I think I would love to play the Marv part. Yes. And Marv part is really fun. Yeah. It's just yeah, really yeah. fun. And it's like you get to play stupid. You get to play, you know, uh, you get to do some fun stuff. It's His physical comedy is so great. When Marv reacts to the gunshots, I was rewound that twice. Like he, the way he falls over those <laughs> so trash cans funny. is so good. Great and here's scream. Back. scream is an all-time. Oh, his scream. <laughs> he, like there's a, uh, a great thing that they said um, that if you were born in 1990 uh, or later, you are older than Marv right now. So, uh, like the idea that like, like, uh, like, I that, looked like, this up, uh, I looked this up yeah. because I was, as I do now, cause I, I turned 41 yeah. today. I like, I'll be uh, watching movies and I'll look it up. Uh, the other day I was watching leave the world behind and I discovered that I'm only six years younger than Maharshala. And I was like, Oh God, uh, what am I, what am I doing? But he was 37 when they shot there, 36 when they yeah, shot this weird. movie. I feel like people uh, looked older. People just looked older. They looked older. I feel like. It was men's fashion. Yeah. I think about this all the time. Men just dress. I mean, look fashion. at me. I'm 41. Yes. I have like a hardcore well, You look hat great. <laughs> you look great. And I'm so happy that we get to be here on your birthday. I, I'm very happy. This has been great. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. This is like wildest dreams. This is the one year anniversary of this show. We wow. can't imagine having a better guest to join us. Well, I, I'm thrilled to be here. I will say that, you know, an interesting thing. I have a book coming out in May, which you can pre-order right now, mm. uh, wherever you get your books, uh, all the all the places have it. But I have a whole chapter about Home Alone in my oh, book. Oh, wonderful. Because I was actually left Home Alone, and I had an attacker try to break into our house. <gasps> so the chapter is called no. Kevin McAllister's Got Nothing on Me. And uh, and it's a this, this pretty scary story about how someone uh, tried to break into my house when I was home alone during summer break. Where did so you grow that's, up? I grew up in Long Island. Oh, okay. Uh, Island. You know, so uh, so there you go. That's a little I'm going to pre-order can, this book immediately. Yeah, pre-order that this. book. It's called uh, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. Um, and uh, I think that we're going to have like some pre-sale incentives and stuff like that, but definitely... Uh, you know, look, I need to get on this New York Times bestseller list. I oh, got uh, to knock off Deepak Chopra or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <absolutely. laughs> Amazing. Wow, I can't wait no, to we will read put a link that. to that in the notes, and yeah. that's so relevant and, and such a great way to conclude. Um, Paul, thanks so much for doing this, and uh, please come back on. We have I a million more movies to talk about. Well, this is fantastic. Uh, happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and happy Home Alone Die Hard Day. Happily Home Alone uh, Die Hard Day, indeed. My, the one video that I made one time that never worked but i think it's still funny i'm gonna do my last joke here for you guys which was i made a video saying um home alone is a christmas movie and people were angry at that because it's like you know like the debate about like, like i just wanted to debate like but like, it was like like that is but no one gets right. irony you can't right. do it i'm like it's so I, clearly I christmas i loved it are you kidding me that's amazing yes so no one got Home that. Home Alone is a Christmas it. movie. Don't at <laughs> yeah. me. I think it's yeah. a way to sell <laughs> Oh, my it. God. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, gentlemen, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, sir. This has been an incredible Christmas gift. And happy holidays right. to you and, and your loved happy ones. Happy holidays. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Shear. What a, what a guy. I can't what believe you wrote a book that has a chapter about Home Alone in it. Oh man, that was that really was like such a treat. Um, we've so been, special. We've been yeah hoping that we could make this work for a long time, and everything kind of lined up. Oh, and, and we did just, it. Just wonderful. What a birthday um, gift to be able to talk about Home Alone with birthday Paul gift, Christmas gift, Speaking of gifts, 
Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so it's, my, uh, my, it's my birthday. <laughs> it's 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 Liam. It's the great Liam I'm, G. Billingham Esquire's gonna, birthday. I'm not gonna. You know, my full name is Liam Gasson Billingham. Did you know that? Wow. Liam Gasson is a is the name of a building at Boston College. If you want to know oh. how fucking Irish Catholic my family is. Um, Interesting. Well, should I unwrap this. I uh, dropped a gift off at Liam's house uh, earlier today, and we, because oh, it's I, December, both of our children <laughs> are sick, so we didn't get near it. We just we like Spock hand through, through the glass. That. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> Um, I read the card. So it was very to, sweet. Yeah. I want to um, just take a moment to thank uh, my partner in crime and uh, dear friend Liam for everything he's done this year because, one, it's been like this has been a tough year for a lot of us in the entertainment industry with the strike and the writer strike and actor strike and all kinds of chaos. And we're all dealing with all kinds of difficult things. And doing this show with you truly is like uh, a beacon of light in my life. And I'm deeply grateful for the time that we get to spend together doing this. And for all of the hard work that you do behind the scenes that is often uh, really, really, really difficult and labor intensive. And I'm super, super grateful for uh, for everything. And just wanted to, uh, so I just wanted to say that and wish you happy birthday. And, Thanks, and buddy. You got a little gift and now. I will send you, can... you my end of year invoice. So just when yeah. you when you get that, <laughs> you know. All right. Uh, I read the card. I'm not going to read the card on the air, but the card was very nice. And it had a reference to, uh, was it blown away? Was there a blown away? The before the devil knows you're dead. No, that's oh, not yeah. Well, it's is just a general. Yeah, I think huh. it is in blown away. I think right, old, but I'm uh, opening the gift. Lloyd Bridges. You can hear it opening. So enjoy the. The suspense is Ooh. building. What is this? This shirt, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my god. Okay. Tell oh the listeners. God. I can't. This is a t-shirt. <laughs> That's. Did you have this made? I I I I didn't have it made, but I found it um, with some some it, uh, some digging. It says, one side going up, we live in a twilight world, and on the other side going down, it says, there are no friends at dusk. Phil, just the way into my heart is to buy me a, a tenant-related paraphernalia. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, I gave uh, Phil a uh, early Christmas gift, which is a um, Hans Gruber. Uh, uh, Christmas calendar where he falls <laughs> on the floor. Uh, you could say that if there was ever a gift made for Phil, it was that one. So I feel the same. I can't believe we're 30 something or close to 30 episodes in and we've had Paul Shear and Jamel Bowie and Sean Fennessy and all of the other people, Blake Howard, Kyle uh, Brandt, Kyle yep. Brandt, all these wonderful Nick people that I'm forgetting. Ronald um, Jr. Like an amazing group of people. And, and it's really fun. And um, yeah, I mean, it's so fun that we have a new review from a fan. Oh, really? Should I read oh, it? Great. Yeah, Please you know, do. these, these yeah. got a little, they dried up a little bit there for a while, but Keep now them they're coming. coming. Keep them Heck, coming, we guys. Need the you don't know how much we, we need, need the validation. Um, okay, so the review is from Bow Creek. <clears throat> Five stars. Terrific. I love this show. Just about every movie they've covered is a total banger and something I watched multiple times growing up. Every episode I've listened to gives me the itch to go watch the movie again. My favorite... <clears throat> I'm not getting emotional. I just have something in my throat. <clears> throat> Every Each episode I've listened to gives me the itch to go watch the movie again. My favorite podcast discovery in a long time. Aww. Thank you so Very much for thoughtful. that. That's lovely. There's that one last lovely. thing I would like to say uh, before we move on to our fi final outro, which we, you know, we we touched on this character. Paul Paul quoted the line uh, from him earlier. Uh, the the there's an actor who is um, 
uh, was a friend of mine and my neighbor. His name was is is uh, was Pete Siragusa, and he played the lineman who um, says, oh, Mar- Marbell's going to be, it's like going to be a couple of days before they Marbell figures oh. us out. And he has this small part and he was my, he was my friend and and neighbor. And he moved into the, well, I moved into his street where he'd been a long time. And we just were, became really good friends and just talked about baseball and sports. And, and he was like, the, you know, would lend me a hammer if I needed it or help me put, put up pictures. And sadly he, he passed away last year. And uh, he was just such a beloved figure. He actually had an incredible career, and and he he was in like a bunch of Coen Brothers movies. Like he's the guy wow. talking to Sam Elliott in the bar, but you don't see him. Like he, he's like a guy in that Big would, Lebowski. In Big Lebowski, I watched he would that be a, last night. Yeah, I watched that scene last he, night. It's he's like a classic kind of case of the there are no small parts, only small actors. Like had this incredible career as these little like scoring in a little you know in a little cameo here and there, and was just a wonderful guy. Sadly, he passed away last year, so I wanted to dedicate this show to uh, to his memory uh, and to the magic of cinema that keeps our friends and loved ones alive in in, in, well, in this wonderful way. You know, there's no there's actually no small stories in Hollywood, and I think that one of the great things about a story like that is it celebrates the people that sometimes, you know, don't aren't aren't Bruce Willis or, you know, uh, Macaulay Culkin or any of those things. So yeah, nice to, for you to tell that story. Um, also nice to get more reviews like the one we got. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend. Um, I'm at Liam G. Billingham on Twitter. The show is at Die Hard OAB. Um, Phil uh, exclusively communicates on on X now. He doesn't actually like I call him like this is actually a recording of Phil's X bot that does the show now. So if you need to reach Phil, Phil, where can they where can they reach yeah. you at Philip Gawthorn, uh at Twitter or whatever it is. Right. Uh, I, I did a Ric Flair reference today. That's the kind of fun, the fun shit oh, I'm look doing. At you. Look at you. You know, I'm, I'm like uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing zany shit on there. So uh, find me on X and, uh, you know, and next get time, involved. Next With the pants. you can find us in the air covering the film Drop Zone, which we went pretty deep on. I love that movie. You love that movie. That's coming up next year. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Um, take care of yourselves. Thanks so much for listening to the show this year. And we'll be back next time with Posse Comatus, which no one is going to get, <laughs> but I get it. All right. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Uh, Love you all. Thank you so much for being part of this journey. Bye-bye. Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.